mantra is change or die. So why do so many companies choose the second option? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. can't go anywhere in the business world these days without hearing about disruption. The word gets bandied about for just about every new product that hits the marketplace and by every consultant peddling the gospel of change. But what does it really mean? And how can we prepare ourselves for the very real change that is wreaking havoc with old line businesses? My guest today offers some guidance. He is Shane Cragen, co-author with Kate Sweetman of a new book called Reinvention, Accelerating Results in the Age of Disruption. We're going to talk about the true meaning of disruption, why so many companies fail to adjust to change even when they see it coming, and what it takes to maintain a culture of constant reinvention without fostering chaos in the organization. We'll also name some companies that got it wrong and a few that got it right. So here is my conversation with Shane Cragen. Shane Cragen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Before we get to talking about your book, I, I just want to ask you a little bit about your background and experience as a change agent. Where did this whole idea kind of come into your life, and how did you come into this field? Out of graduate school, I was hired as an intern at National Semiconductor in Silicon Valley. That turned into a, a five-and-a-half-year job. And Gil Emilio had just come from Rockwell to save National. Uh, it was big news back in those days. That was 1991. And uh, National was the Silicon Valley darling. Charlie Spork is one of the founders of the microprocessor with Andy Grove. And stock was down to three, 90 days from bankruptcy. Gil Emilio came over and had an internal change team, and I was hired to work with that. And Spent the next five years going around the world and redesigning facilities and doing goal alignment and just all kinds of change work. That's where it all started. So the whole idea of change obviously appealed to you. Some people get a little scared of it, don't want to deal with it, but you jumped right in. It seems like that's, a, that's an area that was a great interest to you from the very start. I have two mentors that I, I mentioned in the dedication page. I thought I'd finally get around to letting people know that you only go so far as the shoulder of giants. In fact, when I speak to MBA classes, I say the number one thing is to hit your wagon with great people. And they'll say that uh, my number one trait back in those days was willing to learn. And when you come into a division or a plant, let's say in Scotland, and your whole idea is to go better, faster, cheaper, and there's a lot to learn. So it, to me, it was very fascinating. I'm interested, too, in the fact that 
so-called disruption is such a huge issue today to the point where it's been embraced as a marketing term by just about every company imaginable. Every new product that comes on the market is somehow, quote-unquote, disruptive to the point of where I feel like that word is beginning to lose some meaning. I know that you want to deal with the word in its true sense, and I just wondered if you could give me in your mind what is the definition? How do we know disruption, true disruption, when we see it? We use a metaphor in the book that we, we call global shockwave. And I think we're the first to come up with that. And what that is saying is that these shockwaves come blasting at you out of nowhere. You're from San Francisco. I'm from Oakland. There's a, there's a surf called Mavericks. It's the, it's the deadliest wave on the planet. Only 15 people will surf it. They can surf it two times a year. And when they hear about it, they they flock in. Why? Because they're representing stuff and helicopters are flying around and that's where they make their money. These are 70 foot waves, but the reason that they're so deadly is they're the thickest waves. You look at most waves and they're sort of aqua blue. These are dark green because they're so thick. When you wipe out, it's tough. What we talk about is shock waves. Disruption is like these maverick surf waves that come in. If you don't have the ability to ride the wave, it will grab you and tumble you. I think we've all been tumbled in the sand before, head over foot, where you're, you don't even know what's up, what's down. And that's what we liken sh global shockwaves or disruption to. When disruption hits, people are discombobulated, they're disoriented, they're scared. Like, what's going on? The status quo is no longer the status quo. In our book, we talk about in 1981 really was the first global shockwave since the war in '45. And that was when the Japanese Big Three came in and sold more cars on American soil than anyone thought, and Detroit blinked. It's never been the same. They were like, what the heck? Japanese? They create inferior uh, electronics, and, and they still haven't recovered. That was a shockwave that just threw them for a loop. They did not see it coming. And in our book, we talk about why the six blindfolds. And so that's a shockwave. A shockwave is anything that hits your industry, your company that you weren't expecting, or even if you weren't, it was bigger than you thought. It throws you around like a surf. You're discombobulated. Next thing you know, you're a victim and others are bypassing you on the highway. And that's the way we define it. Who did you and Kate write this book for in terms of position in the organization and the type of person you think would be the ideal reader and user of the material in the book? So we wanted to write a book on reinvention, and we said, is the book going to be on, on reinventing organizations or reinventing individuals? Uh, this is the first book that's written for both. Uh, you, you look at any change book, and I challenge you, you will not find one change book that does them together. Because what we said is that reinventing really is based on the same principles. So we wrote the book for organizations and professionals, but when it comes right down to it, I think mostly the book is for managers, leaders, and organizations that are leading teams, and they need to be able to reinvent and pivot quickly those organizations, but also themselves. Can line leaders get something out of it? Sure. But I'll bet you that five years from now, if we look back at who bought the book, it's going to be people that lead teams, lead organizations, and they'll buy it because of that, and then they'll say, wait a sec, this is actually going to help me reinvent my career or, or be ready to reinvent if I have to. It almost seems like there's a type of paradox in needing to build 
impermanence into an organization in a permanent fashion. Uh, in other words, uh, you constant change, but it has to be part of the structure on a day-to-day basis of your organization. So I'm wondering, companies stand at a decision where they either thrive or they become irrelevant in the face of great change. So what are some of the qualities of an individual, the qualities of a company that put them in that first category that make them be able to ride the wave, that make them be able to thrive in the face of massive change? Great question. Well, listen, in the book, we talk about there's two principles. We call it the message of Mavericks. Number one, you can buoy or not buoy, buoy, not buoy, or disrupt or not disrupt. And how do these big wave surfers know when those waves are going to break? It only breaks 10 days a year, and you never know whether it's between December and April. These guys are all over the world. They have these special radio forecasts, and what they've done is, is they have these buoys about 300 miles away from San Francisco, northwest, and they'll pick up maverick-sized waves, and a maverick's alert goes out. And literally, these guys are on their boards in 48 hours paddling out to the surf. They can be coming from anywhere. So the metaphor there is great individuals, organizations that are going to surf the wave, in other words, not let disruption disrupt them, they're going to have buoys out, and they're going to see it coming. And what are those buoys? Well, it's things such as reading the industry magazines. It's going to conferences. It's being part of CEO groups. It's being part of sales and marketing groups. It's always having knowledge at your fingertips. And, you know, if you do that, you read, you read an article, then you go to a conference, and next week you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm starting to see a trend. I mean, it looks like two years from out now, this technology, that person is in the 5%. It's hard to say, but honestly, 95% of the people do not do that. They've got their head down, working day to day, and they get slammed. The people, the ones that are out there inquisitive, learning, listening, they'll see it coming, and they can start to say, you know, if this thing were to hit hard like a Maverick's way, I mean, let's, say, let's say it does. It probably won't, but if it does, what would I do? They can engage their teams in those discussions. One more thing, too. We help clients put uh, environmental scan teams together. So what that means is that like every six months, the team will go out and talk to customers, look at competitors, look at best in class, talk to suppliers. It's amazing what you can learn if you get out of your own shirt and you talk to others. So those are a couple of things. And I wrote an article the other day for Harvard Business Review, and I made up something called putting boys in your competitive ocean. I think that's probably a strategy. But you know what's funny, Shane, is that sometimes the change is is just evident. It doesn't come as a surprise to anyone. I think for an example, take Blockbuster Video. For years, the business model there was that people were going to come to their stores and they were going to rent videos and walk out with them and bring them back, et cetera, et cetera. But even back then, everybody knew that that model had a finite uh, nature to it. Everybody knew it was going to go digital and that that whole model was going to be destroyed they must have known it too, and yet where's Blockbuster today? Netflix took over, and then Amazon took over, and I mean they could have done the same thing in the face of a of a bloody obvious innovation, and yet they failed to do so. What is wrong with companies when they see the change coming, and yet somehow just refuse to embrace it? You hit on one of the next research projects we're going to do, and the reason is my buddy, I've got a buddy in Silicon Valley. He's one of the best change agents out there right now. He's he's helping football programs reinvent. But anyway, he said, Shane, back here helping Bronco Mendenhall, University of Virginia, 
He said, I was just driving the airport. CBS radio reported that Howard Johnson restaurants are down to two from a thousand. There was a thousand 20 years ago. They're down to two, soon to be one, both in Massachusetts. And so we're, we're going to put out a tweet today. In fact, if I had my computer, I could tell you, but the tweet's going to say something like, Hojo's goes from 1,000 to two restaurants. The writing's been on the wall for 20 years. What gives? <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, come on. Ten years ago, when Hojo's is at 500 going down, <laughs> right? I mean, the blockbuster thing, I just cannot get it. We, we, we talk about arrogance. We talk about believing problems. Don't, but this, this goes beyond that. I don't understand it's the same thing like Kmart and Sears combining, and then five years later, they're Chapter 7 again. You're like, I could have told you that five years ago. So I don't know. That's a great point. All right. So conversely, give me an example of a poster child of a company that's done a fantastic job of pivoting and changing with the times. Well, let's see. Ford is the only one that continues to be profitable. They did not take a government handout. That tells you a lot right there. Chrysler and GM did from Obama, and they're the only profitable ones. And I, I think it started with humility. Honestly, I, I, if you look at the Ford leaders, they're so different than the GM leaders. I mean, the GM leaders still don't get it. The Ford leaders get it. Another thing, too, is Setia Nadelia. We talk about in our book about Steve Ballmer. We talk about the fact that no longer can you be a leader caretaker. Steve Ballmer, co-founder of Microsoft, which we should say. Steve Ballmer, the co-founder of Microsoft. And so when Bill Gates left, he turned it over to Steve. And in 12 years, stock went from 60 to 30. His biggest legacy is he said no to the cloud and put all his money into Vista. We all know what happened to that. It was horrible. Setia has been in place two years. Stock is back up to six, uh, 51. And what Setia has done is say, forget the arrogance of us. And he's partnering with competitors. He's partnering with supply. He's partnering with anybody. He's saying, hey, look, the pie is big enough for all of us. In fact, we can make the pie even bigger. I think Steve Ballmer took it from there's only so much pie. So maybe uh, Ford and Microsoft. What do you think about IBM? Uh, historically, again, a poster child for conservatism in every manner in which that business function, and yet does appear to have pivoted in terms of even changing what it is they sell uh, to the point of getting rid of a certain hardware and becoming a software and services firm and still alive after all these years. Would you consider them to be innovative? No question. Look at Hewlett Packard. I've got a buddy who was the vice president. Well, I'm not going to tell you, but he was, let's put it this way, he knew Meg Whitman real well. He was one of the top 100. He quit. He just said, I can't take it. He said, we just cannot turn this thing around. It's like this big, cumbersome beast that has no oil in the engine. We're just jammed, struck, but everyone thinks we can. We can't. The culture is all messed up. And IBM doesn't have that problem. IBM may not be perfect, but IBM is going forward. And like you said, they thrust themselves fully into the services. And I think HP is tiptoeing. They're dipping their toe in the ice, and, and you just don't do that in age of disruption, do you think? No way. I mean, anybody that is going to just dip their toe in the water in ages, that wave is going to come and just wipe you out. you got to dive into the water, and I think that's what that's the difference between IBM and HP for me. 
All right, but why don't we point the finger of blame a little bit beyond the actual companies and talk about the markets themselves and investors' demands for quarter-to-quarter improvement and growth that business executives seem to feel the only way they can satisfy is through mergers, acquisitions, stock buybacks, to anything other than actually innovate and take a risk on what your quarterly numbers are going to be. Do you think that's an aspect that we have to look at, too? Oh, totally. The, the market drives me crazy. Uh, okay, I got to tell you. Would you want to be like Russia? No. China? No. So you look at our system, it's pretty good. But honestly, this short term, I mean, there are more CEOs that are out of a job because they were worried about the short term. And if they weren't public, they would still be in the job because it's okay to have 5% growth every year. Keep employed, be healthy. I don't know what to do on that. That, that just, uh, it really frustrates me because so many companies, leaders have lost it because of their short term. And well, you look at General Motors, right? They do nothing but what's going to help their quarterly earnings. But then again, you do have a guy like Jeff Bezos over at Amazon who has been willing to co- quarter after quarter after quarter of losses, scaring the hell out of investors. And yet somehow they stuck with him. He seems to be maybe the only example of an executive who dis- who was willing to take that kind of a chance for a truly long-term view. So I guess he is a rare animal, huh? Yeah, I think Jeff Bezos, this is, this is the guy they don't talk about. You want to know the best leader out there? It's Jeff Bezos. But, you know, he sneaks around. But honestly, I, I believe it. I, I believe if we honestly got Harvard and a bunch of consulting firms, and we did this big study on best leaders. I think Bezos would be number one. Absolutely. Think about Bezos is he fits into Jim Collins' model of level five leaders. Number one, the, there's 11 companies that went from good to great, and all 11 CEOs were level five leaders. No one knew who they were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were not the showman CEOs. They were just humble and hardworking. That's Bezos. On the other hand, you do have certain CEOs that are anything but behind the scenes, that they're out on the lecture circuit all the time. And some of them are promoting the, the gospel of change. To the, I mean, for years now, these guys have popped up and saying things like, if it ain't bro- broke, break it. They seem to foster a um, an, an atmosphere of constant chaos within their organizations. And I'm wondering at which point, at what point do we become exhausted by the nature of change within an organization? At what point does it become hard to sustain this roiling chaos that seems to grip uh, the minds of some CEOs on a day-to-day basis and not necessarily in a constructive way? In the book, we talk about that reinvention – and reinvention is just a cloak word for large-scale change, right? Radical change. We talk about the fact that in reinvention, it's an art and science. Gosh, it's one of those things, nature nurture. Could you teach Bezos' ability to use intuition and art to run his company and have the perfect combination of courage versus conservative is amazing. Do you, can you teach it? I don't know. I'll tell you this. I appreciate people like Tony Shea of Zappos. Uh, I wouldn't want to be an employee or the holacracy idea. Heck, if he wants to be a case study for everybody else to learn from, that's terrific. (laughs) Uh, Should every company have a skunk works? Should every company have an organization hidden away, separate from everything else, whose job is to basically undermine the business model of today with an eye toward creating something in the future? Absolutely. We're going to write a paper on that. You got it. Not many people know that, but that's exactly right. One of the things that Jeff Imelt hasn't given credit, been given credit for is... From GE. Yeah, uh, uh, GE Innovation Centers, right? Where he literally takes in their top engineers, and they have an 18-month rotation, and all they do is show up and brainstorm. I love it. I love it. 
is that the perfect model? Maybe not. Let's say you have seven plants around the world. Should you take one and try things out? Absolutely. I think you're right on the money there. But that word isn't out. But I think that probably will evolve into one of my and all of our points of what disruptors do. That's a great point. You can't just turn it on overnight, right? You've got to somehow build muscle memory around change. And if you can have a plant, try new things, take the grape, and then take those plant leaders. And like you do with chefs and restaurants, spread them around to the different plants. Hey, that's, I think that's pretty cool. I mean, at least you're doing something, right? You got, in this age of disruption, you got to at least get on your board and paddle towards the wave. Don't paddle away. You've got to find the right people, too, because the natural human aversion to change can be found throughout organizations. I mean, some people just don't like change. <laughs> Nothing you can do about that. I guess you've got to find the people who do. Well, and, and no one got to Everest by themselves, right? Yeah. And when you go to Everest, you're, you're linking your chain to the very best. And I don't think companies reinvent. Yeah, is Bezos amazing? Yeah, but I'll bet his executive team is pretty cool. Well, Shane, there's so much more we could talk about here. We could talk about your six deadly blindfolds that you alluded to earlier. We could talk about your six experts covering six geographical regions, all the different things in your book. But I'm afraid we're going to have to direct our listeners to the book itself, Reinvention, Accelerating Results in the Age of Disruption by you, Shane Cragen, and Kate Sweetman, your co-author. I want to thank you so much, Shane, for joining us. We will link to the book in our show notes. Maybe we'll talk again at some point in the future to see how your, uh, your research is proceeding. But in the meantime, thank you so much for being with us today. This was wonderful. Thanks. That was my conversation with author Shane Cragen, talking about the importance of reinvention in the age of disruption. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time. Mm-hmm.